Hello and welcome to the final episode of the year for the Green Canary. Now, last week, we warned you we would have something special for our last episode today. I'll be honest, we weren't 100% sure what that was going to be, but we thought of it during the week, didn't we, Elfie? We are going to launch into our stories of the year. There's just a six-pack here. So settle down like you do with a beer six-pack, but this is our Green Canary six-pack of what we think were the most fascinating and engaging and in many ways important stories of the year. By the way, I'm Ant Sharwood, and of course, I'm with Elfie Scott. Before we rip into those stories, how on earth are you, Elfie? I'm going well. Thank you so much, Ant. I am bloody looking forward to the Christmas break, got to be honest. We've done a lot of podcasting this year. I think we should give ourselves a little bit of a pat on the back for how much podcasting we have done this year. Yeah, well, you do another podcast outside of this one as well. So you uh, are probably sick of the sound of your own voice, but I absolutely assure you, you shouldn't be. You have a terrific broadcast voice. Why don't you unleash it on us? In fact, I might unleash mine on everybody first, because I think the first story that I want to get back and, and have a look at is a story that will resonate for a long time. I think when people look back at 22, they will remember this as a year of relentless wet in Eastern Australia, of flooding rains. If this year is remembered for flooding rains, then the one town name, although literally dozens, perhaps hundreds of towns have been flooded, but the one name that will really be remembered is Lismore in the northeast corner of New South Wales. It went so far underwater, it literally wasn't there for about a week. Uh, The Wilsons River just went berserk there. And we were pretty proud of this episode, weren't we, Elfie? Back in March, uh, we had a re- um, we we recorded an interview with Eddie Lloyd. Eddie uh, works and lives in Lismore. She used to be a councillor, actually, but for all intents and purposes, she is a regular citizen of the town. And she gave us some amazing quotes in the interview we did in that episode. Let's hear just a minute or so of that interview now. It's going to be a very, very long recovery and there's absolutely no certainty that we will recover. That is the greatest fear in Lismore at the moment is that we're not going to get um, adequate financial assistance to rebuild. Families are going to get split up. There's no housing here. Um, Everyone's really, really frightened that this is going to be the end to Lismore, which would be a real shame because if you know anything about Lismore, we are a really, and I'm really starting to hate the word resilient, we really are a resilient, sustainable community. You know, we, we want a circular economy here. We want to manage our own waste. Um, we want to, you know, we really do walk that reuse, reuse, reduce, recycle mantra here in Lismore. And, and we've got a lot to show the rest of the nation in terms of resilience in these climate change events. But um, unfortunately, our community has borne the brunt of it, maybe the biggest um, brunt in terms of uh, human cost um, so far in Australia. And that's really devastating. And I'm just really disappointed in our politicians. And, you know, this could be a great opportunity for them to use us as an example of how to build a community that can adapt to the changing climate and how to fund communities from the prism of climate change and not from um, this political um, election cycle prism that we see funding um, you know, coming to certain electorates and not others. So, yeah, Elfie, uh, Eddie Lloyd's such an impressive person and she and the entire Lismore community, um, she ha- said she hates the word resilience, but they, they have no choice but to be resilient. Um, 
I believe that to insure a house in Lismore costs something like $30,000 a year, wow. which makes it totally uninsurable for, for the average person. This this is a community that is at the absolute coalface. I hate that pun, but, you know, at the coalface of climate change. Um, and these increasingly severe and frequent flooding events can be traced directly to climate change. We've seen them across the world this year, not just in Australia. In Pakistan, in the mid-year floods there, 8 million people were displaced. And although the numbers were smaller here, sort of in the Australian context, this flooding that we've seen this year, not just in Lismore, as I said, but elsewhere, uh, has been no less significant. Um, and I love the way that Eddie just sees the disaster, describes the disaster, not just through the small picture lens of her own experience, her own personal upheaval, her own town's personal upheaval, but through the big lens of governments that are doing nothing about climate change or that were. Remember that episode was recorded back in March. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I'm really glad that you picked that story, Ant, because I think that you're absolutely right. I think it is so definitive of this year's climate events in a way. And I think that Lismore and what happened there is going to be remembered for many, many years to come as a symbol of impending climate disasters. So good work on bringing that interview back to us. Thank you. And look, um, so from a small town hero, if we can class Eddie Lloyd as that, to a hero from the top end of town. Give us <laughs> the your killer of transitions, Aunt Charlotte. <laughs> yes. So my pick of the year, well, one of them, will be the AGL story. So we started covering this back at the beginning of the year when Mike Cannon Brooks, a famous billionaire, had been working to try and acquire AGL. There was basically this ongoing saga that happened very quickly. But um, what happened was that MCB tried to buy out AGL. They rejected him. And then it seemed like the story kind of fizzled out of the headlines for a couple of months. But we have been following this story. And at this point, um, Mike Cannon Brooks has installed four of his own directors to the board of the AGL. He stopped the proposed demerger of the company. And he has basically brought forward the closing date of some of its biggest power stations. So he's really forcing the hand of AGL from the inside as a shareholder who, I mean, I, he only owns 11% of AGL's shares and he's leveraged that to throw his weight around and force Australia's largest emitting company into the renewable energy transition. And this was, I think, in a way, a really definitive story. It was a story that brought a lot of hope, I guess. To me, it brings me hope because you know, you look at the amount of wealth in the world and the way that wealth has, you know, destroyed the planet in many ways because so much of that is uh, accumulated in these very em strong emitting industries, polluting industries. But then you get somebody who is a billionaire and is using his money for exactly the right reasons and it's pretty fantastic. What we know about AGL is that before Mike Cannon Brooks uh, sort of started on this journey, they were hemorrhaging value for shareholders for the better part of a decade because they failed to get on board with the new renewables energy transition. And now that MCB has implanted himself there, he has forced them in a direction and that's pretty cool. It was a coup. It was a non-violent coup. It was yeah. absolutely magnificent work by Mike Cannon Brooks putting a dirty fossil fuel company um, in a corner it didn't want to be put into 
and saying, you've got to do this now. You've got to be more like this now. It was absolutely fantastic to see. Here comes the next transition, Elfie. Of course, something else that was fantastic to see was America getting serious about climate change, mm. or at least getting serious about getting serious about it. You know, there, 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 <laughs> there, there are steps. But we refer to the story that we covered in uh, our August 8 episode about the passage of the US climate bill. Now, this historic pass, uh, bill um, was was actually, uh, you know, called the um, Inflation Reduction Act of 22. It was so named because lots of other measures and uh, were, were tied into the one piece of legislation. But the part that interests us, and I'm, I'm sure interested our audience, was the $370 billion that was being directed uh, towards climate change mitigation projects. Now, it was the biggest victory uh, for the US environment movement since the landmark Clean Air Act. It was a investment, or it is an investment, basically in renewable energy production. Uh, most of the 370 bill um, is, is, is sort of almost hidden in things like tax incentives um, that will encourage companies to uptake clean technologies, incentives to develop renewables for people to purchase electric vehicles and a bunch more. Um, it was fascinating, Elfie, speaking that week to our podcast guest. We had on Professor David Smith of the US Studies Centre and the School of Social and Political Sciences at the Uni of Sydney. Um, he had some interesting thoughts on what made this, in a way, a uniquely American package. And to put it in a nutshell, um, you can't just tell Americans, do this, but you can economically incentivize them to do this. This, in this case, being get serious about uptaking uh, renewables. Uh, Let's hear just a very, very small snippet from our interview with uh, Associate Professor David Smith to get a feel for what he was talking about. It really reflects a very kind of American approach to this, which is to throw a lot of money at trying to get both corporations and people to change their behaviour. So um, there's going to be a lot of subsidies to try to encourage energy companies to move to renewable uh, forms of energy. And there's going to be a lot of money aimed at persuading people to change to electric cars. So that was uh, Associate Professor David Smith uh, there from Sydney Uni and the US Studies Centre there. Um, and look, overall, uh, the US's package, that $370 billion package, aims to reduce uh, US carbon emissions by up to 40% in the short term, although uh, Biden believes that that action from the states uh, and his own administration may enable the US to reach his stated goal of cutting emissions by 50%, which is better than Australia's uh, 43%, by 2030. So this was a big moment uh in in american politics in american history in american environmentalism we mostly throughout the year as the listeners would know concentrated on australian stories but from time to time we ventured overseas it was fascinating to sort of come to an understanding uh, of exactly what had happened in america and it was a good moment 
Yeah, yeah, I think that is a fantastic choice. Well done, Anne. And also, you know, I think it's funny because we focus so much on the Australian stories here. And I think that focusing on this big, global, impactful uh, part of US politics was a really good choice. So well done. Thank you. But of course, when we spoke about Australian stories, oh, sometimes we were talking about big picture things, uh, politics here, the election, God knows what. But sometimes we played, I think, very much to your strengths, which is to get down and dirty with a climate activist, to talk to one of the people who are out there uh, doing their part. And let's move to your story uh, that you did way back on March 21. Yes. So this story was okay. It was a follow on story from the end of last year, we should say, actually, because it was a huge disappointment at the time. What happened was that the federal court overturned the ruling that the environment minister had a duty of care to protect children from harm caused by climate change. The environment minister at the time, for those who don't remember now, looking back at the old Liberal government, was Susan Lay. So the overturning happened in March of this year after the government lodged this appeal against the first ruling that Susan Lay had an obligation to consider her duty of care when making the decision to greenlight the expansion of the Vickery coal mine in New South Wales. For those of you who need reminding, Uh, The group who took Susan Lay to court in the first place was actually a group of climate activist kids, students, and they basically had this incredible victory at the end of last year that turned into a stunning defeat in March. And for this story, I spoke to Anjali Sharma. Uh, She is a fantastic young climate activist. Uh, For those who haven't caught her appearances on things like Q&A on ABC, she's incredible to talk to and like such a fantastic personality to be spearheading this kind of movement. But here I spoke to her about what it was like to be in court that day, to hold the hands of her friends and how incredibly emotional it was to witness this victory turn into this huge loss. And basically what I wanted to get a sense of was where Anjali thinks they can go from here. Like, is this the moment that sort of proves that court cases don't work for climate action? Like, how can we think about this? And she gave some really clear and coherent answers that made you feel really optimistic for the future. I think going out of the courtroom, um, looking out, holding the other litigants' hands and um, fronting the media and hearing all of them speak so passionately and seeing the tears that were, you know, so open and everyone talking about their personal experiences and why they've been fighting this fight for so long um, has made me realise that no matter how much we're knocked back, um, it's in no way the end. Um We'll be back in some way, whether that's an appeal or whether that's back on the streets. There's always more to do because this fight is about the lives of people and that's not something that you give up easily. Okay, so that was my interview with Anjali Sharma in March of this year. And should I give you my next story? Should we go into the next story that I've chosen for this year? Yeah, you chose it, but it was going to be on my list as well. So it's a sort of joint <laughs> I won. But how could it not be? It was a federal election. And and look, um, I I reckon you and I um, didn't didn't do such a bad job, if we can give ourselves a very gentle plug, um, forecasting what was going to happen. I mean, I mean, we called an episode of the of of the podcast um, a referendum on climate, question mark or dot, 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 you know, um, as in will this election be a referendum on climate? 
I know a few people who are a bit cynical who said, oh, Jesus, it's a federal election. They always vote um, hip pocket. You know, they're mm-hmm. always about economics. Um, but no, this was the climate election. We saw all the teals elected. We saw, you know, three greens along the Brisbane River alone in um, in Brisbane. Uh, you know, actually, I remember the newsletter that week had the headline, the brown snake that bit Australian politics. The brown snake is, of course, slang for the Brisbane River. And, you know, it was my thesis that that um, nowhere else in Australia, you know, we, we, we see things like Lismore. We see a lot of these other climate disasters play out sometimes away from the major population centres. But when a clearly climate-related disaster came right to town in an urban area, those urban people turned around and voted green. So you bet it was the climate election. Yeah, completely. And yeah, as you said, like it wasn't even just these urban voters in Brisbane. Like you saw a huge overturning in Sydney of these like safe liberal seats to climate independence to those teals. There was the teal bloodbath, if you remember that. (laughs) That pissed you off actually when people started (laughs) using that metaphor because you were like, a bloodbath isn't green. Anyway. That aside. <laughs> I stand by that. I stand yeah. by that. Unless you know, it's a, some sort of Martian bloodbath or alien bloodbath. Yeah. <laughs> Look, I still think that this is obviously one of the biggest climate stories of the year because we ended up with this government that legislated that 43% emissions reduction target. And that was... I mean, not nearly as ambitious as we would have liked to see necessarily, but it was much more ambitious than the previous government. And suddenly I remember waking up the next morning after the federal election happened and feeling this incredible relief and excitement for the future because suddenly we had this government who are proposing these massive new energy transitions across the country they have the rewiring the nation plan alongside uh their main sort of environmental plan it is really it's been it's been a very interesting year and i guess the point that i want to walk away from with this story is that even though there was so much time to feel optimistic after the federal election, after we saw all of these voters uh, putting their hand up for climate. I would also say that now is not a time to turn away from caring about all of this because the Labor government still don't have coherent plans in place for a lot of their energy targets we still haven't seen a more ambitious target for 2030 created even though there was that legislation that said that is a floor not a ceiling so there are plenty of reasons to keep the pressure on the Albanese government even though this was such a huge moment for us yeah that's well said that's I mean you know there's still something like one percent being spent on biodiversity measures to, to to improve our biodiversity that than the amount of money we're spending on on fossil fuel subsidies so priorities are have have realigned somewhat but uh now is as you as you say time to keep the pressure on but having said that you know talk about climate change 2022 will be uh remembered as the year when the political climate changed in australia yes very well done and my god what a turn of phrase. All right. Now we have your final story for the year. And I really like this one. I have to say, I covered this one for my other podcast, Left Right Out. Yeah. And um, it became 
such an interesting topic because I feel like this one was one of those ones that was so hard to explain and so opaque to most people that they couldn't care about it. And then suddenly we had experts who we were talking to who were breaking it down in this way that was actually accessible and it gave you a lot of reason to get really fucking mad. So, <laughs> Ant, tell us about this story. Sweary Elfie is everyone's favourite Elfie. I'm glad we got <laughs> one more dose of her this year. Now, um, we actually, we didn't have a sweary guest, oh, but we had one with some colourful language. We we had on Tim Buckley. Uh, this was our June 20 episode, if you feel like going back and listening to it. Um, he's the Director of Clean Energy Finance at... Oh, we love saying it. AIFA, AIFA <laughs> is, is, of course, the Institute for Energy Economics and Financial Analysis. Anyway, Tim came on and explained the gas crisis. Look, long story short, there was a cold spell in Queensland. Uh, that meant everyone switched on their heaters or whatever they switched on. Um, it quickly uh, led to peak demand, which led to record high gas prices and the gas power generators weren't going to make any money with all those high prices and they weren't willing to turn on their generators there were problems with supply we had blackouts in stepped aemo not to be confused with aifa <laughs> um, but aemo is of course the australian energy market operator they suspended the market they said you have to turn your generators on gas companies gas companies call their bluff said no nah, not going to turn them on aemo said you're going to turn them on when we tell you to turn them on, you can worry about making profits the rest of the time. But when we have a crisis, you will turn your generators on. It was an absolute shambles. That's essentially the gist of it. And the reason I can explain it so clearly is because, as I said, we had Tim Buckley on from uh, AIFA uh, on June 20. And he not only explained it clearly, but he littered our interview, Elfie. It was such an interesting Elf uh, interview. Let's get a financial gas analyst to talk about gas supply issues. Well, I've already gone to sleep, except we had Tim Buckley and he was so terrific. He he just absolutely called them the fossil fuel mafia. He said they have gamed the system to buggery. He said they have screwed everyone on the East Coast of Australia. He blended... Um, this colourful language with easy to understand explanation. And um, it was a pretty bad scene there. And it was a major energy story for the year uh, that hopefully we won't see the likes of again. Last week is the culmination of nine years of energy policy and climate policy chaos from the previous government under Angus Taylor. So the ALP has hit the road running, but they inherited a budget crisis, a energy crisis and a climate crisis all within their first three weeks of getting into the chair. So at the end of the day, I'm not blaming them. They have to deal with it. But what we do have to do is separate out what is the immediate need and what's the long term need. So the immediate need, we have an energy crisis on the East Coast, not the West Coast. The West Coast has a gas reservation. They have use of public gas for public use in, a, in, a, in a Western Australia. Eastern Australia has an absolute policy failure. We don't have control of our own public resources. We have let a multinational gas cartel come in, hoover up all of the gas out of the East Coast of Australia, export the majority of that and leave the East Coast the dregs. 
I love how Tim Buckley spoke in that interview. And I would also say that this is an ongoing theme. Like basically every story that we do about the fossil fuel industry in Australia there's at least a sidebar or it's dominated in part by conversation about how greedy and reprehensible these fossil fuel companies can act. And also the fact that they're not taxed nearly enough for what they're doing to the country and the environment. So I loved that interview. And I think that is the perfect way to end this podcast and because we can end on a note where we feel empowered and educated and angry. And I think that's exactly how we should feel about the environment and climate news. Yes, that is very well said, Elfie. And just before we wrap up with this final show for the year, we would like to acknowledge, as always, the traditional custodians of the land on which we're recording, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We'd like to pay our respect to elders past and present and acknowledge that this land was stolen, never ceded. Thanks, Elfie. And as uh, mentioned at the top of the podcast, everybody, this is our last podcast for the year. Now, the Green Canary is, uh, we're, we're tired. We're having a break for a couple of months. Um, we have plans for 2023 that may differ from our plans for 2022. Please stick around. We will keep you abreast of what we exactly are up to on our socials. So say hello to us there uh, at the green canary oh, sorry at green canary pod on twitter at green canary media on instagram we'll let you know what's going to happen in 2023 but for now uh, thanks to each and every one of you who have listened to us this year we hope you've enjoyed the way in which we've brought you the green news we try to do it with a bit of energy and a bit of humor it's pretty serious news but that doesn't mean you can't treat it with some lightness where possible and we hope to do something similar in 2023 so thank you all again thank you Elfie for being such a wonderful co-host and we'll see you soon bye bye